You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. of the the decision to only have the ghost like actually appear to Hamlet not just in the not having having someone playing the ghost in the opening scene but also like later when uh in the closet scene when Hamlet's talking to Gertrude and he mm-hmm. sees the ghost that I thought they used the lighting really interesting there to like mm-hmm. black him out so we couldn't mm-hmm. see him when she turned around so what mm-hmm. do you guys reckon I feel that that was just to um increase in this tragedy of Hamlet that he is slowly becoming mad or to the outside view, he is becoming mad. And it also is kind of, it feels like a, a like a psychosis or mm-hmm. it's, it's a more psychological internal journey for him. Um, just in terms of, you know, this is why he's doing this and this is why he's different from everybody else in the play that he this is this is why he does what he does and this is why he's he's doing all these crazy things it's because he's being drawn that in that direction by his dead father so i think that that that's what they were trying to highlight in this production i completely agree i think that's very well said i was very nervous in the opening scene when they didn't have the ghost mm-hmm. i was like mm-hmm. they're not gonna have like a physical ghost how are they gonna do it <laughs> yeah 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 right um and so uh, yeah that was that was one thing I was sort of like, really just, oh, this isn't a good idea. And then, of course, they did have the ghost with the actor doing a way better job of the ghost than Claudius, I yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I thought the lights were really beautiful, like if nothing else. Um, and the beautiful. sound was really interesting, too, that we've got a uh-huh. sound cue for the ghost, I thought, helped Later on, with that sort of sudden mood shift with Hamlet in the uh, in the closet scene, when he sort of hears the sound and the light changes slightly. Here's and, a, a so I'm sorry, am I, am I interrupting? Keep going. Uh, I, I was just going to say that I think one of the things that's effective about Hamlet, both Hamlet Senior and the Ghost, being both in a nightshirt and with those lights, is that it's very intimate, and so it really highlights Hamlet's grief. And maybe that's one of the reasons also that other people don't see it because this play is, this production is very focused on Hamlet, Hamlet's grief and Hamlet, you know, Hamlet's crazy seems to be much more linked to just the grief about his father than say, you know, in the Greg Duran production where it's like his entire world has been turned upside down. And I don't feel that as much in this production because, you know, Claudius isn't scary and because I don't really get the same sense of, you know, him having lost his mother and his girlfriend and his place in the state that it's just, there isn't that sort of complexity, I guess. That's kind of harsh, but maybe somewhat true. And so I thought that that part was, was quite effective for that. 
One thing I was a little puzzled by, though, was after setting it up to be this psychotic kind of psychological situation with the ghost, and then when he does finally show up, there's so many heart-wrenching moments where Hamlet reaches out to him and can't touch him, that when they made the decision at the end for Hamlet to actually be cradling the ghost in his arms, it was a very poignant scene, but it seemed completely wrong from everything that had been leading up to that moment. But I yeah, didn't think I mean, they should have touched. Yeah, I mean, I right, think right. what you say is actually really good because I, I forgot to, that I, I hadn't said, but what's really interesting about that initial scene with the ghost is that Hamlet is really trying to reach out and it feels much more like the ghost is manipulating him because the ghost yes. is like, I can feel your grief. I'm going to make you do this. And then as mm. soon as Hamlet reaches out, the ghost yeah. is like, bye. I, agree I wrote this. the exact. Oh, sorry. No, uh, please go on. I was just going to say, I wrote the exact same thing in my notes. I said, the ghost is very manipulative mm-hmm. and I, and, and I feel that that was a direct choice by the director to make it really obvious on why. Hamlet is doing all the things he's doing. It's because he was manipulated by the ghost. Yeah, the the end with with them touching. I wonder though if that was a way for them to again increase this idea of of the tragedy of Hamlet is becoming matter and matter, and so he does believe that the ghost touched him. But hmm. I, I mean, I don't know. That's just that's just a thought I had. But I agree. It, it wrecks the conceit, though. I, w- I wonder, though, if that's why the production is showing Hamlet's plans as being so silly is because he's been manipulated by the ghost. And so it's like he doesn't really want to kill Claudius, but he's trying to feels like he's, you know, trying to do what he was told to do. And so if he comes up with these futile plans. I'm going to be like crazy. Uh, I'm going to put on a play, which is like maybe something you're doing if you're like, well, I'm I'm just trying to show you that I'm doing it, but I'm you know, I'm deliberately. Sure self-sabotaging because I don't actually want to kill Claudius. Well, even using the same actor to play the ghost and Claudius inevitably suggests that Hamlet is crazy because he's seeing these two men as being so completely different, like one's Hyperion and one's a satyr. And we're seeing that they're exactly the same. They're indistinguishable. So the problem is in Hamlet's head. Okay, I mean... I agree that that's happening in this production, but I'm not sure yeah. I could say that as a sweeping generalization because that's certainly it doesn't it, happen with Patrick with Patrick Stewart. Does yeah, it? yeah, no, no. I mean, I think what happens with Patrick Stewart is Gertrude is conflating the two and ah, yeah. using oh, right. using Claudius as as sort of a Hamlet senior substitute because she's mm. just doesn't want to deal with her grief. And here is you know a nice guy who looks just like her husband, and then she slowly has to come to terms with the fact. And she's able to ignore it until a point where she's like, okay, I can't ignore the fact that you aren't my husband and that you aren't treating my son well and that you have all of these problems that you're trying to hide behind and I can't deal with this anymore. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. Sh- so, I mean, I think what you're saying is true in this production, mm-hmm. but um, I, I don't know that it's, I wouldn't say it's true of Hamlet in general. You're right. It's not an, in- no, an inevitable consequence. No, I don't think it's it's necessarily true in all productions of Hamlet. I just think the director was really trying to emphasize it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would buy that. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that's part of why we're we're sort of seeing weaknesses in the supporting characters. Um, because if you're trying to make a production really about it being in Hamlet's head and Hamlet being unstable and 
you know, really on him, then if we're sort of in his perspective, almost like he doesn't have a complicated view of his mother or of Claudius. Mm -hmm. He does have a complicated view of Polonia though. Should we talk about the fishmonger scene now? Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 (laughs) The sexual harassment scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. I loved Mm -hmm. it. I I was blown away by it. I was mm-hmm. I I found it very <laughs> sexy and tense. And I wondered though, and I just wanted to pose this question to you, t- uh, to all of you. Um, do you think that that was heightened because Hamlet was played by a woman and Polonia was played by a woman? Do you think that that could also? I mean, I could also see it being having sexual tension if if Hamlet is played by a man and and Polonia is played by a woman. You know, I could still see that, but I'm just wondering if if it was even heightened this time around. I don't think that Hamlet needed to be played by a woman, but my first thought, and and it might change after listening to other people, but my first thought is that it needed to be a woman playing Polonia. Hamlet says, you know, the first thing he says to Polonia is, you know, I, yes, excellent. Well, you are a fishmonger. And of course, that's a slang term for a pimp. So Hamlet is attacking Polonius right from the beginning um, for the way Polonius uses his daughter. But what and, and sort of the awareness uh, of Polonius's obsession with Hamlet as a sexual threat and Polonius's obsession with Ophelia as a sexual object is there. But with this scene, it was like Hamlet was saying to Polonius, or Polonia rather, okay, you think I'm a sexual predator? Is that what you think about me? Well, then I will be the sexual predator that you, that you fear. Let me, let me be your worst nightmare. And I, I I really liked that. It was, it was so massively uncomfortable as well. It was just Mm -hmm. like real, really feeling that. Uh, instability and just they really really went to town on the sexism like Mm -hmm. like hamlet's sexist anyway like always but Mm -hmm. but just like starting the the, prefacing the you're a fishmonger line with the like sniff up and down her body is just really oh my god yeah Yeah. i um, yeah and and just continue it like like Lots of the sort of phallic references with how masturbation. (laughs) Yes, yes. In my notes, I wrote down, "Wow, they're going full Donnie Darko Hamlet." Uh, And I (laughs) yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Just yeah, that kind of very unstable young man uh, around professional woman, and um, yeah, it was it was so strange and like such a with the. You're a fishmonger scene it like most of Hamlet's kind of post antic disposition scenes with uh Polonius are always kind of him poking fun of Polonius's like windbag tendencies. Mm-hmm. But in this it was it was Hamlet recognizing that that Polonius one of Polonius' vulnerabilities is that she's a woman and just going at it, like really sharply honing in on that. And it was it was so interesting and such a different relationship for them to have than that I've ever seen. I think one of the things that was also interesting about the way this scene was staged is they had those two chairs on stage, which were the chairs that um, Claudius and Gertrude yes. had sat on yes. during the, um, the player's production. And you see Hamlet sitting in Claudius's seat and Polonia sitting in Gertrude's seat. And so there was just this sort of implication, you know, just that, you know, 
Hamlet wants Claudius's throne and that Polonia in some way is taking Gertrude's place. I agree. I think that was very clear and it was a nice added level of, of significance there. Yeah. Maybe that adds to, I don't know, the Oedipal ideas between Hamlet and Gertrude. And yet they didn't go Oedipal at all yeah. in this production. No, they didn't. Where you would expect it. Um, Caitlin, was it you who mentioned this? How, how sexist Hamlet is? And I was wondering if anybody wanted to go back to that idea. You know, Maxine Peake as a woman and kind of playing up the sexism in Hamlet's character. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's just adding to adding another aspect to an already really like interesting production in terms of how they're doing gender. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. Maybe it was partly a kind of way of reminding the audience that Hamlet is is still male. Uh, instead of like, which I thought they did pretty well in terms of the fact that all of the other gender swap characters had gender swap names. They had mm-hmm. different pronouns, whereas Hamlet was still Hamlet and still mm-hmm. my lord and he and, and a prince. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe it was, it was just, I mean, maybe it was, it was just sort of, yeah, say Hamlet's still a man. And maybe it was also just because as having a, an actress play him, they felt mm-hmm. a little bit more free to really go, mm-hmm. uh, full, throttle on the mm-hmm. on the sexism whereas maybe male a male actor kind of playing it they want to dial it back a little bit I don't know not sure but mm. this is sort of related I mean not about just the sexism but I'm wondering because what's almost bizarre is that they've gender swapped a bunch of characters but they haven't gender swapped Hamlet I mm. know this is the thing that I this was my biggest question that I wanted to pose to everybody uh yeah i this was also my question too because i i did it didn't bother me, but at the same time, I did wonder why you know, yeah, what do you guys think about that because i I really struggled i i mean that was a question I had, and I just didn't know what to say in regards to that mm-hmm. well, it does leave you wondering whether you were supposed to notice the gender of the actors or not, doesn't it right. And for me, the thing that I found really remarkable of Maxine Peake's uh, performance was that she brought this swagger, mm-hmm. arrogant, shit-disturber kind of quality to Hamlet mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And there was a definite masculinity there, but yeah. it was almost like a – and it was a youthful masculinity. Oh, yeah. Me, you know? I felt and, like she'd been studying you know, rap stars. A little bit, yeah, actually. Uh, because – there was something really cocky about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I really enjoyed watching that kind of portrayal. Like I, I got lost in her playing the character. And for me, the sexuality of the character, as in the maleness of the character, was was prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if anybody ever got lost with the fact that she was a woman. Because I did. I I was like, yep, she's a male. She's in this character. She's fully there for me. But at the same time, I just wondered what you guys thought about that. I bought her as a man. Yeah. I I think what was sort of confusing to me is that I pretty much immediately was like, okay, she's a man. Mm -hmm. And and I was just willing to go along with that. But it is kind of interesting that it does raise the question, why keep Hamlet a man in a way that it wouldn't have if they hadn't gender swapped? Um, the other characters. Like I saw um 
Richard III at Stratford with uh, Shauna McKenna, and she played Richard III. I mean, you could go into questions about why I have a woman play Richard III and all of that. But, you know, I didn't really think about the fact that Richard III was still a man. It was just like, okay, I mean, sure, she's a great actress, and we're going to let her play Richard III. And then mm-hmm. that was sort of my attitude towards Hamlet initially. But because they've gender-swapped other characters, yes. it's like, are they yes. doing, are they gen- doing something with yes. And yeah. I read an interview with Maxine Peake, which I found very confusing and, and sort of confused me during while I was watching the production was where she said that she thought first she was like, you know, why not have women play Hamlet? And then but then she was like, I, I think and it was sort of confusing because she the interview was talking about how Maxine Peake sort of keeps changing her look and her pers- mm. public persona and that she's known for doing that and and that she was a tomboy when she was a kid. And then, and then she says that, you know, she thinks Hamlet is a man trapped in a woman's body. And then I'm like, so are you playing it as trans or like, right, very right. Yeah. About yeah. what yeah. that meant. And then it also confused me when I started to see Hamlet's relationship with Horatio, which I'm not sure I would have read into as something otherwise, mm-hmm. but there seemed to be some kind of weird tension between them. Yes, and yes. Yeah. And not that you can't have sexual tension between the two men. They certainly had that in spades in Doran's um, mm-hmm. production. Sorry, Doran's production. Um, but in that, it, it almost, it read as this very sort of like they were, it felt like they were exes and like maybe they were exes when Hamlet had not figured out Hamlet's gender and Hamlet was like a woman just because well, of the yeah. way that Horatio was rolling up Hamlet's sleeves in yes in for yes. the fight totally. that it seemed very totally. familiar and gentle yeah. and yeah. not that you can't be familiar and gentle with a man but it just felt very Intimate. like there was a weird gender thing going on there i didn't know what it was i'm very excited to answer like okay so here's the thing i really felt and i'm kind of glad that we're bringing this up i really felt kind of that there's this fluidity of sexuality with Hamlet in this production. Um, especially, yes, with this relationship with Horatio, I felt like there was a relationship there. And I was fascinated by that. And and it was the kind of intimacy that I did not see between Hamlet and Ophelia. And Horatio's older, he looks older than Hamlet. Yeah. Because he's got, you know, the the grizzled hair and Hamlet may have crow's feet, but Hamlet also has that that boyish skin. You know, there's no five o'clock shadow on on our Hamlet. So is Horatio in some ways even yet another father figure for this young man? I mean, I I was, I mean, again, maybe, and I was sort of reading it as still somewhat of a sexual tension or something. Oh, yeah. That... That this Horatio and, and Hamlet seem like they have an old but now almost defunct intimacy mm-hmm. that you don't, you know, in great contrast to the Horatio in Doran's Hamlet um, mm-hmm. is that Horatio and Hamlet were like pals and Horatio was his right hand man. And it was almost problematic that Horatio never judged Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And in this one, Horatio is never really that close to him. Like they do hug and there is that intimacy mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. rolling up the sleeves. But a lot of the time you see Horatio is sort of at a distance and I don't really, mm-hmm. they, they seem quite cool to one another, but also like they have some lingering. Yeah. There's this lingering understanding between them. I agree. Or, yeah. And um, I just wanted to go back. Now I'm really fascinated by Maxine Peake's uh, comment about a woman trapped in a man's body. Do you think that 
she's referring to herself as the outsider. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm wondering if that's what she's referring to more so than. Yeah, like, I'm not even sure that she means trans because I get the impression that she was saying something about herself that she doesn't, that why Mm -hmm. is it because she was complaining about critics Mm -hmm. um, always mentioning that she had short hair. And I think she was making more, Mm -hmm. I think she might have been making a comment more about gender roles than about gender identification. Well, Hamlet as a character is certainly struggling with the masculine ideal that he is uh, that he knows he's supposed to live up to. And sometimes he beats himself up for failing, you know, who am I a coward? Who calls me that zooms? I should take it. You know, if you, if you let somebody call you a coward and you don't fight back, you might as well just, you know, not be, you might as well be a woman. So that, that sense that he, he either doesn't try hard enough or is trying too hard to, to be the man that somehow he isn't, I think you could you could you could read the script that way. Well, the other thing too is that there are men in the in the play, and it was sort of jarring to me almost when I saw Horatio. Oh, Horatio is played by a man because Marcella, mm-hmm. the first one of the first people we see is Marcella, not Marcellus. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And so this is not li- like what Felita Law has been doing at the Donmar Warehouse, and it's since been brought to New York City. Has just been taking Shakespeare plays, mostly history plays. I guess she did Julius Caesar and. Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, and then just cast all women, and was just like, well, why not let women play these roles? Whereas, by the, by virtue of the fact that in this, it it didn't just seem like, well, let's be equal opportunity, and why not? Because there are characters in this certainly where you could swap Guildenstern and Rosencrantz and say that they're women, mm-hmm. and not make a statement about it. Just be like, well, why not have them played by women? Or you could, or even Marcellus, you could have play a woman and not make a statement like there are ways you could do it and not make a statement about the fact that it's a a woman Mm -hmm. um, especially with the smaller characters but in this they're very much making statements about a lot of the characters anyway Mm -hmm. by gender swapping them and then not gender swapping by having Hamlet played by a woman but still a man and then by having you know Horatio and Claudius still men played by men yeah yeah I think I think it's really interesting. I I really liked the fact that having Hamlet played by a woman and also having gender-swapped characters and also having characters who are just the same as they've always been, it draws attention to the gender of everybody, I think, where it's yeah, like it's yeah. problematizing gender without just making it about women. Like we can also – Yeah, we yeah. can also think about – about, you know, the way Claudius performs his gender or the way Horatio performs his gender, as well as, you know, having uh, Rosencrantz played by a woman and, and Hamlet played by a woman and Polonia. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And, and yeah, having, having Hamlet, a man played by a woman really, and I mean, it made us think about uh, Hamlet's masculinity, which most of the time people don't because you don't mm-hmm. tend to think about gender when it's a man playing a man. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I really, really loved Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. By the way, they were they was yes, they were such they were like punks. They were like they were mm-hmm. total punks. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. for sure. Claudius was so uncomfortable with having yeah. there. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're and they're like motorcycle jacket and and mm-hmm. dark lipstick and and the tattoos and everything it was really good. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I love the styling of them. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was really interesting choice to have these outsiders come in. I just didn't find them very funny, though. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I lost some of the humor with those characters. Yeah. yeah Wait, the other thing that is maybe confused, I don't know, I'm curious what you think about this, because there's certainly the, it implies that they had an intimacy and they used to party together in a way yes. that we don't anymore, you know, in the sense that they actually, I guess Rosencrantz actually hands Hamlet cocaine and then Hamlet, mm-hmm. mm, I would like it, but I'm having bad mm-hmm. dreams. Mm-hmm. And, and so you get the sense that the, and, and there's always been this sort of casual relationship with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that was different from Horatio where, you know, they're making yeah. crass sex jokes and, and, and Hamlet doesn't, you know, see eye to eye with them in the same way he does with Horatio. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if this is at odds or, or how this, because on the one hand, by having Rosencrantz and Guildenstern be these sort of punks, it's suggesting that mm-hmm. Hamlet used to be, you know, a, a playboy and yes. a party animal. And there certainly seems to be sexual tension with both of them. Like maybe they've, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows whether they, Hamlet slept with both of them or they had a threesome. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, you have ha- Horatio, who's this very, um, like a straight man. Mm-hmm. Um, and does it make sense that Hamlet would have had both this sort of, you know, very conventional friend as well. It's friend than these party animals as his other. To, to me, what it does is it really changes my idea of what Wittenberg meant to Hamlet, because uh, Claudius and Gertrude don't even seem to know that Horatio exists, which is why I don't think he should have been at that dinner scene. <laughs> but you know, the guards know Horatio. Horatio's the outsider. Um, I always think of him as being, I make this whole backstory up for Horatio, you know, where he probably got to university on scholarship because he obviously wasn't raised with the aristocracy. Yeah. But Claudius and, and Gertrude know Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. When they think of Hamlet's old friends, that's who they think of. But Hamlet has outgrown them and he's gone mm-hmm. off to university and he, and he's met Horatio. So it makes sense to me that Horatio should be so much more mature than those two. Mm-hmm. And if Hamlet used to be this punk, I, I always thought of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as being, you know, spoiled rich kids and, and this, view of you know the kind of kids that who's would have been allowed to play with the son of the king you know carefully selected and to see them as punks i'm i'm still not sure that that totally works in in terms of the social class that they're coming from but in some ways it works really well but and it really does emphasize that maybe Hamlet, the Hamlet's older generation his mother and father and uncle might still see him as this irresponsible almost like a, a henry the a prince hal kind of a mm-hmm. guy and they don't give him credit for having matured so so you think so are you're saying are you saying rosencrantz and Guildenstern are hamlet's childhood friends as opposed yes to- that's how i read them oh, in this okay. production or generally generally okay. in, yeah 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 and because i think we have to figure out why they're on claudius and gertrude's radar right yeah and horatio yeah. is not because what was confusing in this one is it seemed like, well, Claudius, I mean, this is true the, in, in many productions is that Claudius doesn't know which one is Rosencrantz and which one is yes, Rosenstern. that's true. Right. But yeah. they also seem deeply uncomfortable with these mm-hmm. people that they've invited in in order to help them out. Like, it almost seems like they don't have the kind of familiarity that you would have with somebody who is your child's childhood friends. That's true. But then... 
Gertrude knows who they are, and Claudius is just Hamlet's uncle, so he wouldn't right. have been around when Hamlet was a little boy. That's true. I mean, the other thing that I'm wondering about is because there's, there's sort of this weirdly chilly relationship between Hamlet and Horatio, is why is Horatio still there? Like, why, what is Horatio doing there? Why doesn't Horatio, like, leave and go to Vinton? Like, what is he doing there for all this time? Just a slightly unrelated point but about um, social class. I thought the way the accents were done in the play were really interesting. Oh, of course, yes. it's... it's Yes. In Manchester. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the actors are clearly, you know, Mancunian and, uh, mm-hmm. and you have this, um, clear set of people who have more kind of southern classic kind of London Sussex accents. Yeah. And people who have Manchester accents. Mm-hmm. And then there's Hamlet who has little tiny touches of Manchester in the yeah. way she yes, speaks. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yes, And does. so it almost felt a little bit to me like we've got this divide between the Hamlet who's a prince and who's, you know, sort of in the upper echelons, upper classes, mm-hmm. and Hamlet who likes to hang around with people who aren't necessarily from, from that world. Mm-hmm. And so when you get the – like, I mean – a, a good example is um, Rosencrantz, which is from having a, that kind of more generic English accent to having when when she comes back as the second grave digger mm-hmm. to having the full blown Manchester mm-hmm. accent. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, using the accent to to represent class like that makes Hamlet's kind of position in the middle really interesting. I think. I agree, and and that's reinforced by his costume. I think one reviewer yeah. said that he looks looks like a a uniform from communist China. I know, and, and, right? And I, yeah. I agree, but it really reinforces Hamlet's struggle between his pride in his royal blood and his democratic ideals. I, I also felt, though, that that costume, just to talk a little bit about that costume, mm-hmm. I also felt like it sort of, had you made the sleeves longer, mm-hmm. it could have resembled a straitjacket. So for me, I wasn't sure if that kind of was pushing the the theme of of his madness a little bit further as well. But yeah, I, I definitely felt like it was nice. an, it was very much an outsider from everybody else as well in terms of the costume. But I, I think that costume is also kind of asexual. I know, yes, yes. that it's not yeah. really masculine, and it's not not that it would be feminine, but it's it's not that either. Like it's just it's not really tailored. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it helped it helps to dif- disguise uh, feminine curves in a way that was helpful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but I also felt like it just heightened that the, the fact that she uh well, Hamlet looks so much different than everybody else mm-hmm. in the play. I think it's also I mean, worth pointing cuz Caitlin you made this good point about the accents. Is this seems to be a thing that they do in England and I mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you can speak to how this has been done in New Zealand and also in, in Canada, because I know you, because Caitlin, I know you were talking about that. But this seems to be quite common in British productions where they will give characters different accents in order to tell something about social class or in, in the Coriolanus with Tom Hiddleston, they um, had Ophidius have a northern accent and all of his clan have northern accents in order to differentiate them as foreigners. And this seems to be like a thing that gets played around with a lot in British productions. And I'm not sure that I've seen that 
in Canada or even in the U.S. It's like I don't see people putting on Southern accents or um, which is probably the most obvious one or say Texas accents or. I only saw one production that played around with Yankee versus Southern accents and I, and it was brilliant and it was the winter's tale. Mm. Um, but it was ironically at Stratford upon Avon. <laughs> so it was a bunch of British <laughs> accents. Mm. The, the Bohemians were all from Alabama basically. And, um, the other, I forget the, the other country. Um, they were all, they all talked like Yankees. Um, but yeah, in this, in this country, in the U S I, I haven't seen it. I I think that there might be productions where it makes sense. Like Henry the fifth, you could, you might put like, a I could see a Yankees and a Southerners. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, but I could, the idea makes sense to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. There's potential. Definitely. I don't know, Caitlin, what is your experience? Well, I'm New Zealand, New Zealand accents aren't uh, necessarily quite so defined because we've only been around for a couple hundred years, um, not even that long. Uh, but I know in England, um, accent and social class are so closely tied to each other. And social class is very different in England from the way it is in New Zealand or in America or really anywhere else. It's, uh, well, it's, it's similar to America in a lot of ways, I think. But it's it's um social classes. I disagree. It's it's tied to very different things. I think. Well, from from my experience of of mm-hmm. social class in America, which is basically TV, but uh, it's it's nothing to do necessarily with money. It's mm-hmm. nothing to do with even even where where you're from. Like mm-hmm. it's there are plenty of uh, Pluty people who live in Manchester and who've always lived in Manchester or, or in Yorkshire, um, but. They don't have Manchester or Yorkshire accents. Yeah. Um, like upper class Scottish people or Irish people don't necessarily mm-hmm. have Scottish or Irish accents either. Mm-hmm. So there's this interesting that, that class is marked out by the way you speak, by your religion, by who you, who your family is and what your connections are. But, and is, is so important in, in English society even now like way more important than it is in New Zealand and much less racialized than it is in New Zealand and I think also in America as well but uh yeah the I think the accent thing in this play was was speaking to their audience in Manchester in a sense um and they would have got that shorthand really well I think one of the similarities though between the U.S. and the U.K. with the accents is that is that you see I mean part of why say some people in Manchester or New York don't necessarily have those accents because they went to posh public schools and they lost their accent. Oh, yes. Picked up the public school accent. Or you have Ken Mm -hmm. Rana, who's Irish, but he deliberately lost his accent as a kid because he was being made fun of when he went to Britain. And then what you see in the U.S. is a lot of Southerners who have deliberately tried to lose their accents. Like I know I have a doctor here who um, she's from the South, but then she went to school in Pennsylvania and she deliberately – tried to lose her accent. You can hear it come out now and then, but it's like she's deliberately lost it. And now it's mostly she doesn't sound like it. Or Reese Witherspoon, who can have a super country accent, but has deliberately tried to lose it in order to play more mm-hmm. versatile roles. But that has to do with region more yeah. than it does with with class or yeah. privilege. or the, And living in the South as I am now, it's, I agree with you, but with, within the South, there, everybody who's from here speaks with a Southern accent, but there are huge distinctions in their grammar. 
Mm-hmm. But that is a very a, a very different kind of a of a class marker, right? And that's also like a race thing in the U.S. too, with the differences in grammar. Yes, qualified. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a yeah. generalization, but yeah, yeah. there is certainly within different there accepted things that are not mm-hmm. um, you wouldn't necessarily look look down on. It's just a cultural thing. I mean, I guess. Sorry, I know this is a long tangent, but I mean, one of the things that I wonder of interest is when we're talking about, you know, recording productions and bringing them out to the world, um, I wonder how well these accent changes travel because, of course, and I wonder if this is just because we're all from the Commonwealth and, you know, British, what is it, our Anglophiles to some degree that, you know, mm-hmm. we watch a lot of British TV, we've been to mm-hmm. England and we're, and of course, we also have the Queen that um so we're very aware of the accent meanings in a way that i think americans are definitely not because i completely agree yeah like i yeah. i can tell when i meet a brit i'm like oh i know where you're from mm-hmm. yeah yeah um and then americans are like oh are you from or somebody with a welsh name with a northern accent i knew someone here and they were like oh are you welsh and i and i thought i was surprised it didn't drive her crazy that people asked that because i thought well she's clearly got a northern england Mm-hmm. accent she's clearly doesn't have a welsh accent even though she has a welsh name mm-hmm. or this person clearly has a london accent well i've been asked by americans if i'm british all they can really tell is that i don't talk like them oh well that's good because i i've had both brits and americans tell me that my accent is just like an american and i've argued ah. at greenwich and arguing with the woman who worked at greenwich in mm-hmm. in London, and she was like, "You're American." I'm like, "No, I definitely have a Canadian accent." And yeah. Americans tell me, "Oh, you just sound like us." And I'm like, "No, I definitely sound Canadian." Uh, obviously, there's similarities between all of. All yeah, of I don't. All I, sense, but yeah, I don't know if the subtleties will be lost in the U.S. Um, I think I don't. This is part of a different kind of tangent, but I wonder if a U.S. audience might kind of feel like this is a more true, I don't know, production of Shakespeare than something that they would see in their own country because of the accents. Mm-hmm. I always wonder about that because mm-hmm. I love a British accent with Shakespeare. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a sucker for it. So it's it's one of those things where I don't think that they'll get the subtleties per se. And I mean, that's generalization too. But I wonder if they'll um, they'll just enjoy listening to the language. Well, I wonder if it's also a question of the differences in the kinds of shorthands that get used because mm-hmm. accents and class consciousness is very big in England mm-hmm. in a way. Yes. I yes. see racial casting be a big thing in the U.S. Yeah. That's a big yeah. – yeah. Here you have to do it in different ways in North America. You have to do yeah. it with costume. You have to do it with the way people move and with, with gesture, um, yes, with appearance. But, I mean, even – I think it's different in Canada versus the U.S. versus – the UK, like this production has, um, actors of different races and it's just not, not a, not a thing. It's not mm-hmm. a, an issue. It's just, it's basically, there's no r- reason why one person would be one or the other. It's just, sure, mm-hmm. whatever. We're just mm-hmm. casting good actors. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. I found that and, very, yeah. And I could see the same thing being done in Canada quite seamlessly because it's just so multicultural and you're just used to seeing mm-hmm. it look different. Whereas I think it would, and I've seen this done in the U.S., but but I think also it might take on more meaning if you're doing it in the U.S. where there's much – not that there isn't, you know, huge amounts of racism in Canada or the U.K., but mm-hmm. it's much more of a, a thing that gets talked about in the U.S. in a way that we don't talk about it in Canada. 
Yeah, even though we should. But oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. totally totally different conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. I think I agree with you. It, it's, it, you know, for Britain, they're using accent to kind of symbolize something. And in the States, they're using race to symbolize something entirely different. So I found that really refreshing about this production that they had people of all races playing different characters. And I, I really found that, uh, yeah, like I, I really enjoyed that. I, and I didn't, it didn't distract me or, or do anything. It just enhanced the production for me. I will have to admit though, that I found the, uh, the fact that the player King who is now the player queen was played by a black woman really that both her gender and her skin color made her performance of the speech about um, King Priam's slaughter in really, really poignant and moving. Yeah. And, yeah. and I didn't want yeah. to ignore her race. To me, that really yeah. added to her character. That's what I sort of mean, like an enhanced mm. moments as well. Yeah. Okay. This is not the Shonda Rhimes of Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I would love to see that. It just for like just a fun popcorn movie. Oh. <laughs> Cuz you know that's going to be a hot mess. <laughs> I feel like you could definitely do a Henry the 5th or there's all these like, "Oh shit, you did not just say that." Or Henry the 4th part. Totally. Oh man, could be like a total Shonda thing. But anyway, more as a comment on race than on soap operas, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then maybe we can backtrack toward the nunnery scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I found kind of confusing. I'm wondering if maybe you can help me out with it. Because I guess at the beginning it read to me as though Hamlet didn't know he was under surveillance and he was sort of watching Ophelia, who seemed reluctant to be there and to be giving the letters back. And Hamlet has a lot of, you know, looking at her like, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when he puts her on his lap and is kissing her, like, I'm not sure, was that a performance or was that, uh, I'm not sure. Do you think, yeah, yeah, do you think they were going for this sort of him making the choice to really play it up, his madness there, or, yeah, I don't know, yeah. The other thing I wondered is, are we supposed to think that Polonius and Claudius can hear them but not see them? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I wasn't um, sure about that either. Yeah, I wasn't sure. No. I thought his treatment of Ophelia was very consistent with his treatment of Polonia in the fishmonger scene. He was tormenting her. Yeah, yeah. Messing with her head, trying to drive her as crazy as he felt. Yeah, yeah. As a way to really sell that he's He's crazy as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really, I was very convinced by Ophelia's, the actress who played Ophelia's performance and just mm-hmm. that she loved Hamlet and that this yeah. was really messing with her. Oh, and yeah, actually, totally. Yeah. The way she played that scene just set up for me the her madness later on in a way that I haven't mm-hmm. seen that it, it didn't, it felt like a natural progression because she was, she was so disturbed by what was happening in that scene. And, and I agree. And throughout the whole thing, actually, she was very uncomfortable right from the start. And, uh, and I thought that was very well done. Mm-hmm. Well, I also thought that Polonia had some role in driving her mad just by mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Not yeah. giving her comfort and keep driving her into these situations that yeah, definitely. Hamlet messed with her. Um, I had a bit less clarity on, I'm not sure I fully understand, understood why Hamlet was messing with her, whether she was just like a sacrificial lamb to his plot in yeah. a way that I think there, it felt like in the Doran that, you know, that they had broken up and that, you know, that their relationship was somewhat a thing of, the past and so his behavior towards her had changed in a way that I wasn't quite clear on here. Yeah, I felt like she was a sacrificial lamb, definitely. I think uh, he had to sell his madness and part of that was to sabotage his relationship with Ophelia. Do you think that he even loved her though? I don't know. See, this is my problem with like... In in a lot of productions that I've seen at Hamlet, and I mean, I can't speak for the ones that you mentioned today, but I don't know if he loves her. And I don't really, I don't get a great sense of it from this production anyway. Mm, no. like, And I also, I don't, I mean, I have issues with Ophelia as a character. I'm not really a big fan of hers. And, and But it's not because of her per se, but it's just because of what happens to her, which, so maybe I just don't like the scenario um, more so than the character, but I just, I don't get a sense that they ever loved each other. I maybe I get a sense that she loved him, but I do not get a sense that he loved her. And her sense that she loved him and her pain, uh, if we can just, if, if you can indulge me as I jump to an earlier scene very briefly, was, I thought, brilliantly um, emphasized by the way, and, and Polonia's coldness, by the way that Polonius made her read aloud the letter he had sent her. Yeah. Have her stand there and perform it was devastating. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. really sensed her pain. Um, but where he was at, uh, I, I don't know. That he wanted to hurt her, absolutely. That this was not the first time he had kissed her, absolutely. But beyond that, very hard to read. And I wondered if in this, it was almost playing like a childhood romance, which is maybe in contradiction mm. with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern read. But there seems mm. to be an innocence to those letters, you know, and, and his bad poetry in a way that I think in the Doran anyway, that the, there was a, you know, he looks at those letters and there seems to be a real sense of feeling and of a relationship. Mm. And I'm not sure that these two had a relationship, you know, like I think in David Tennant, Hamlet really had a relationship with Ophelia, like they were boyfriend, yes. girlfriend and I think we all agreed that, you know, they had slept together and this was a sort of mature, real relationship that then got turned upside down when mm -hmm. Denmark was no longer the place where, you know, his family was there and, and he lost lost everything, including Ophelia, Claudius's reign, where I don't get the same sense of intimacy and knowing each other. And part of that is, I think we, which we mentioned, is when they have the players and Hamlet lies, puts his head in Ophelia's lap. She runs mm -hmm. away. She doesn't stay there. Yes, that's true. One thing about this production with, in regards to Ophelia that bugged me is that they did such a good job of selling how freaked out she was by this whole thing mm -hmm. um, and how she was kind of starting to fracture early on. Mm -hmm. And then they went ahead and had her get naked anyway. And it's like, I don't, I just, I felt like it was really unnecessary mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't so much in 
the um, door in Hamlet. It just, it felt, yeah, it felt like, especially considering how buttoned up she was throughout the rest of it, it felt like a real kind of crazy Ophelia found her sexuality and it drove her mad. And I don't think it was necessary. I think they could have done that scene without the need to strip her and it would have been convincing enough because of how well they were laying the foundation for it earlier on. And I wonder if that stripping was less about her stripping and more about their weird clothing thing because they use the clothing for the flowers. And so they just were like, we're going to use clothing for all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. So if she takes off her clothes, then we have something for her flowers and what, and maybe it wasn't Hmm. about, maybe they weren't even thinking, or maybe they were just like, well, Ophelia always takes her clothes off because that's what happens all the time. So we might as well use the clothes for flowers. I mean, I don't know. Well, that, that for me, I, I mean, her stripping down naked for me was a direct correlation with her becoming more and more mad Yes. Uh, and lovesick and heartbroken and mm. throwing a tantrum. So for me, I that was how I read that moment. I saw it as this lovesick girl who got her heart broken and she mm-hmm. just loses it. And mm-hmm. I mean, in some weird way, I actually really connected to that moment in a different way than I've ever seen that played. I was very moved by it. And also, it was really raw, you know? One of the things that I thought her stripping down to her underwear did that was for me very effective was um, give Laertes something to really be made uncomfortable by as well as horrified by, you know, when Laertes has to see his sister in her underwear and be, you know, having to look at her nearly naked body as her brother. And, and it, it made it, I think it gave hit the actor playing Laertes something really strong to respond to. Which like, I was totally unconvinced by the actor playing Laertes the whole way through. And I okay. don't think that ever actually changed for me. Fair um, enough. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was good that he had something to, to work with there, but uh, I agree. But, um, yeah, no, he was probably the weakest uh, of the bunch for me, just in terms of line reading and just not um, didn't get a sense of his character at all. So was it just me going crazy or was there like a big red mark on Ophelia's abdomen? Like I didn't know if that was just, you know, nothing or if that was makeup and that was like supposed to be a bruise. I, or I didn't was, I didn't notice. I didn't notice it. So I, I can't comment to comment on that. Sorry. Then it probably wasn't supposed to mean anything mm. <laughs> if I'm the only one that noticed it. So I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the fact that it was um, this 360 stage with audience members surrounding um, the entire center of action. And whether that, you know, did they use that in a way that created meaning? Was it sort of ignored? Did it have useful, did it add useful layers to the text? Did it take away? What did you think about it? Well, I think that, um, potentially there's a couple things that they, the director could have been doing, which is, you know, this idea of the gods above were judging down below. The same thing could be said of the audience. They are the spectators judging the actions of the players or as well as the kind of this idea of the space encroaching in, into itself and getting smaller and smaller. Maybe it was that sort of tension of the audience putting that encroachment on the players as well. And and I agree with that. And at the same time, I was also thinking in some places where it was more 
the other way that the action of, on the stage was threatening to um, threatening the people in the audience. I felt very unsafe as an audience moment at points in ways that were really exciting to me at the beginning where I'm being blinded by the flashlights, you know, you know, the, the, the guards with their who's there. I, I feel that the threat could have been coming from anywhere. So yes, the audience is encroaching on the stage, but at the same time, they're the ones, well, Hamlet has the gun and, and those flashlights. So that made me feel very unsafe in the audience. And then there are places, I think in the, is it the to be or not to be when Hamlet or, or uh, where he's he's brandishing the gun and pointing it right at the audience in in a way that um breaks the fourth wall that that I found very uh very intimidating there was also uh I'm not sure where this was exactly but for some period of time there was gun just sitting on the stage mm-hmm. um and certainly the way it was shot you could actually see the gun they showed you the gun on stage and that felt yeah. you know Chekhov's gun like I mean I'm not sure whose gun it was, I guess it was Hamlet's gun. That was I think it's in the to be yeah. or not to be. It's like he's using the gun that he's just killed Polonius with as an object of meditation. Almost. Right. But I mean, it, oh, oh, you mean it's on stage during that, that he's not holding it. Yeah. Uh, right. But yeah, where is it? Where is it? Um, is it later in that speech where he picks it up and, and points it at the audience? Uh, Anybody remember that? I, I don't remember that. I do remember the moment where he does pick it up and he points it. And it was very threatening. Yeah, but I'm trying to recall when it was. There's also the fact that when Polonia dies, she's sort of stand like the the way the stage is set out. She's standing right, like right next to the audience. So mm. he uh, he necessarily has to kind of threateningly point it at least near the audience when he when he shoots. Yes, it. good point. Yes. Well, I'm also wondering how this affects the meta theater or does not affect the meta theater. Um, aspects of the play because you do have the asides that Polonia has but I'm not sure that Hamlet's soliloquies are as obviously directed at the audience as so much as to himself because the audience is surrounding him all sides Um, and I'm not sure I mean I wondered whether this on the one hand it you could read it as a surveillance state in the sense that they're literally surrounded by eyes watching them. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, but they never really react to the audience exactly. in that way, no, do they? they? Yeah. No, they don't. Well, and I think one of the things that I'm wondering about is, you know, because they've removed Fortinbras, then, mm-hmm. and because they don't have, I mean, by the end of the play where they, they, you know, they actually end with just Horatio and Hamlet on stage and Hamlet is like, you know, tell my story. I'm kind of like, well, who is Horatio going to tell it to? Because, oh yes. you know, Fortinbras isn't coming. And they sort of dealt with that in the Doran production by having Hamlet actually start to document his story and was filming things to document things. And I don't know if we're meant to be witnesses and so effectively we've heard the story like i'm not even i'm not really sure what the role of the audience is or if they had thought about that even in this version because we get that that view from above at the end which again emphasizes sort of this outside uh, overview supernatural sight um, rather than what the audience is seeing or thinking or at least the audience who are around close to the stage. So they're, they're, on, they're shut out more than drawn in at the end. 
Well, I wonder if there's also some sort of strange thing going on about isolation because you don't oh, sure. get a sense of the outside world. I mean, not mm-hmm. just about the fact that it's claustrophobic in the sense that there are people surrounding them, but mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, Elsinore is disconnected from the outside world because we don't have Fort and Brass and because hmm. even Hanlet's departure to England doesn't really register as a departure. And so I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure what it, what it means or whether it's almost playing out as like a parable or yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think when you have that kind of a stage and you don't have actors talking to the audience, it's a, a choice that's difficult to justify. It almost yeah, it's seems like that, stupid, that's such, isn't it? such a great opportunity to explore that aspect of the text. Yeah, there was one moment that I just loved and it was not on purpose at all. It, I don't think anyway. Was mm-hmm. the um when Gertrude drinks the poison and mm-hmm. she seems to do it quite sort of unthinkingly in this in this production, or unknowingly at least. Mm-hmm. And when she drinks the poison, there's this little gasp you can hear from someone in the audience who goes yeah. <gasps> like, Oh yeah. my god, she's drinking yeah. the poison. And yeah, that yeah. was so beautiful. It was like I mean, not only mm-hmm. is there someone in the audience who didn't know that was coming, which is great, uh, <laughs> totally, but, also, yeah. but also just that little moment of the audience reacting and us kind of getting a sense of the audience reacting. I really enjoyed it and I feel like the moment I, that happened, I thought, oh, why didn't they have more of this? Like, why mm-hmm. didn't we have more? Because mm-hmm. I loved being able to, every now and then, just in the background of a shot, just see people sitting and watching. That was really cool. But, yeah, I feel like they just they could have – done something really interesting with it and they just didn't yeah i think that um it's a bit of a stilted relationship between the audience and the performer in that case and in any good production of shakespeare i or i think of a shakespearean play you know they utilize the audience in such a way that they're almost Mm co-conspirators and that wasn't evident in this production i think one of the things that because is the biggest problem when you're translating Shakespeare to the screen and is that you you lose the obvious meta theater and the the fact that you know they're the consciousness of an audience because now you're in the real places and the real locations and there's less sort of um a pact or agreement silent agreement between the audience and the and the actors and, and what's going on on stage and so some of the things don't necessarily read well and I wonder if it's getting lost here as well, just by virtue of the fact that the the stage is, you know, has audience on three around three sixty. I don't know if you can stage a place to take account of the act, the audience's eyes on all four sides. I don't know why you can't stage a play that engages with the audience on. Well, it's not four sides; it's three sixty. There are no sides to a circle, but we do have the different the vomitoriums. Uh, vomitoria approaching the stage that do divide it up into areas, regions, quadrants, I suppose. I mean, the thing I would say on the other hand is I wonder if this helps it translate to the screen. Right. Hmm. Because yeah. I, I would say that there, there are some interesting similarities between some of the productions that I'd say work well on screen and that mm-hmm. they are 360 in a way that if you look at the Greg Doran Hamlet, basically mm-hmm. what they've done is they've got this they basically use this large room as a stage mm-hmm. and then they treat it as basically a 360 stage because there's no obvious place where the audience would be. And then that allows the camera to move around and for things mm-hmm. to happen, even though some of the blocking seems very much like it was translated from a proscenium stage. You still, 
get it still allows like a freedom to move around and capture performances. And I yeah, I agree. And the same thing was true with Julie Taymor's film from our honored pilot, which we'll we'll get we'll return to at some point, where she filmed a production of her Midsummer Night's Dream at the theater for a new audience. Um, and it was also a 360 stage. And she showed us the audience there too. And then that sort of allows the camera to move around and capture mm-hmm. sides in a way that I think it makes was it, th- it, was a thrust, it was a thrust stage, wasn't it? Oh, oh yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. It was a thrust stage. But it was like a long thrust yes. stage. So yes. it, even though it there weren't – it wasn't 360, it still mm-hmm. was – like, you know, the actors were almost completely surrounded by audience. Yeah. I, I would completely agree with you about that. Yeah. So I was just trying to picture it in my head. So yeah. no, you're, you're right that there was a, a back to the stage. Um, it was like a long, thin stage. And so I wonder if that is part of why it's helped. If this helps translate it to the screen in a way that some of the other productions maybe don't necessarily work as well on the screen. Like if a proscenium stage works less well because you're more aware of the fact that you're watching a production than when you see close-ups or medium shots of the actors, you're like, is the camera on stage? What's it doing on stage? Right, right. Um, whereas here it's like it's all free form anyway. Yeah. So it's me. I thought the camera work was really good in this in general. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah. Especially for uh, a staged production of Shakespeare onto the screen. I thought it was more dynamic than any I've seen in mm-hmm. – well – in recent years. And the other thing that this did that was also done with the Julie Tamer production, I wonder if, if, if it reads your, as if you think it matters is the fact that it was shot over three nights. Mm-hmm. It was over four nights. Um, and then they edited it together. And do you think oh. that helped or, hurt? I mean, I, I had no huh. idea until I read this. I, I wouldn't. Wow. I was surprised that. by that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I didn't know either until you told me and it made sense because I was wondering how they were able to get so many different angles on the same very short scene. And, and if, if you, you know, getting all your, if you're getting those different angles over different nights, maybe maybe that's how they did it. I'm not sure. Yeah, they probably had to set up all the cameras in one position. And then, you know, I wonder how much flexibility they had for stops and starts is my mm. kind of question as well. Because mm-hmm. if you're setting up shots and you're setting up, you know, pans up and, and you know, you know what I mean? I think I wonder, you know there probably needed to be a lot lot of time to do that because it's technical and and it's going to be a lot more in need of precision as well. So that doesn't really surprise me, but it's kind of, it's interesting. I wonder what it would have been like for an audience to have experienced that filming. Well, I mean, part of it is I wonder, and I guess this, I think the answer is it doesn't matter is that, you know, there's a different energy and, you know, anybody who's been to theater knows that, that a performance one day is, could be completely different in some ways from a performance the next day. And so, mm-hmm. a, I mean, I guess we didn't feel like we lost a few months because none of us noticed. No, I didn't notice. So I yeah. didn't either. And I was kind of looking for clues that it had been assembled. And I thought it was terrific continuity, yeah. really. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they did a good job of that. And I guess I also wonder about how this affects our perception of the blocking um 
It's one of the things we complained about in the Lindsay Turner production, which was the proscenium stage, was that there were too many medium shots and we couldn't tell the blocking. And mm. of course, the blocking is going to be very specific towards an audience on a proscenium stage in a way that it's mm. not on a 360 stage. That, mm. you know, it's it's much more all over, not all, well, all over the place, I guess, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not as important to see who's downstage versus who's upstage. That's right. Yeah. Um, the picturization doesn't really make sense in the same way. But so yeah, I don't I know if you felt like that you couldn't see the blocking or it didn't matter or... I didn't get a sense of the blocking, to be honest, Alex. I, because of that, because, because the shots were from so many different angles, I thought, oh, wouldn't it have been interesting had I been in the audience to get a real sense of the blocking? That's, that was really what I felt because I, you know, you did get a sense of it in certain moments, but uh, in some certain moments, I, I really didn't. So did it bother me? No, but it kind of made me wonder what it would have been like to have seen it straight on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder how much because I, I felt the same way that I also couldn't always get a sense of the blocking, but I wonder how much that represents information loss in a way that you know, I mean, obviously it's different. It gives you a different experience, but maybe it just allows it to work better as a film mm-hmm. as opposed to the fact that you're conscious that you're watching a recording of a film. And it, are you losing as much information just by virtue of the fact mm-hmm. that it's a three sixty stage compared mm-hmm. to you know a proscenium mm-hmm. where? Yeah. Left, right, down, up yeah. are much yeah. are very you know coded and and yeah. important for for yeah. theater historians. There's information lost definitely. I, I think as a documentary of a production, it we are losing information about the blocking. But in terms of it working as a as a work of art for the audience, I felt that it belonged in the same category as the Doran production in that it was really very, very successful hybrid between stage and film. And that's a hybrid that's difficult to achieve. Yeah. I mean, I felt like it was very watchable in a way that mm-hmm. sometimes just recorded productions of theater are um, an exercise. Like, you know, you're glad to see it because you're learning something and you're getting something, mm-hmm. as you said, as like a theater historian. Oh, that's an interesting way of blocking it. That's an interesting way of presenting it. That's an interesting interpretation. But sometimes those productions don't feel like – like they feel like a chore to watch and not like mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. go back and – you know, like I can just turn on – I mean, obviously Brand is much to do, but I think it's just eminently watchable. But, mm-hmm. you know, I could just turn that on and watch it like, you know, very easily in a way that I'm not – or or even Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus in a way that I'm not sure I could turn on – not that we have this luxury necessarily, but turn on, say, the Coriolanus at the Donmar or – you know, Sam Mendes' King Lear, which I saw National Theatre Live, which I think is terrific. I'm not sure that I would sit at home and be like, this sounds like a fun way to spend a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. In the same way as, you know, I might want to revisit it, but it's almost more in an academic way. Like, what? how did they do this? And yeah, I, yeah. Um, this is interesting. And what can I learn from this in a way that, you know, is, again, more like documentary as opposed to this is entertainment. It's almost like the camera is in place of the blocking at some moments, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense, you know, mm-hmm. swooping in, coming down, it, it gives us this uh, cinematic perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that makes it different than just a proscenium March stage production where you're very much, um, you know, you know that they're on stage, you know, the stage pictures that they are creating, 
with this, it just felt like this. Yeah. Like you said, uh, Leslie, this hybrid mm-hmm. between cinema and staging. When I wonder, cause this is of course directed by somebody, somebody different from the director of yes. the production. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's different yeah. from both the Tamor and the Doran because yeah. the Doran, so, so he directed it, but he had a collaboration with the mm-hmm. cinematographer as far as how they were shooting it. And so then yes. he still had some role to play. He was part of the discussion and, you know, possibly she was part of the discussion in this as well. I would think she must have been. I was really surprised when I saw that that Sarah Frankcom, is that how you pronounce it, had had been the stage director and Margaret Williams had been the screen director because I thought that Margaret Williams really understood what was going on and and the reasons for it but and that the the staging the blocking for the stage translated really well to camera so that there that a really effective partnership is what I would think so you think that's more to do with likely the partnership or the way that the fact that it's a 360 stage or some combination yeah, I mean, it's hard to know but it, it, it is there, there's good understanding there's good communication or there's good analysis there's there's smart work <laughs> smart careful work going on there somewhere I'm not sure how it was achieved but yeah definitely all right well okay let's wrap up this will be the end of our episode on um, Hamlet starring Maxine Peak. I'm your host, Alex Heaney. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. My guests today are Laura Ann Harris. Hi, my name is Laura Ann Harris. I'm a playwright and a director from Toronto, Ontario. You can find me at www.lauraannharris.com and with an E. And Caitlin Merriman. Um, I'm Caitlin Moon, and you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Snark, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K, and I pretty much do what it says on the label, lots of snark. And I'm Leslie Peterson, and I'm um English professor at the University of North Alabama, and I guess you can find me on their website. And you can find all of us on Twitter at 21st Folio, that's 21, the number, S-T, Folio, where I will be retweeting tweets that all of us make with Shakespeare snark jokes and other (laughs) things. Yeah. So tune in next in the next couple of weeks where we'll be doing more Hamlet, David Tennant's Hamlet and a bunch of other things. And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. To keep up with the latest episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com. dot